Hi, I'm Dan Webster, film critic for Spokane Public Radio and blogger for Spokesman.com. And I'm Mary Pat Truthart, part-time film critic, full-time law professor at Gonzaga University School of Law. And I'm Nathan Weinbender, also a film critic for Spokane Public Radio. And welcome to Movies 101, the show composed of three movie fans, two of whom, as of yet, haven't finalized their best-of lists for the year 2023. But we're close. One of the candidates is on this week's docket, Maestro, the biopic of the late Leonard Bernstein that was directed, co-written, and stars Bradley Cooper. We'll also discuss a Netflix release titled Leave the World Behind, an apocalyptic study of two families striving to understand why their lives suddenly are being affected by a mysterious crisis and what, if anything, they can do about it. Let's begin, though, by looking at the life of the great conductor-composer Bernstein as it progressed with the woman, played by Carrie Mulligan, who stood by him despite more than a few complications. Anyone of a certain age, and I can't say exactly what that age would be, should be familiar with the name Leonard Bernstein, one of the great names in 20th century classical American music. Far fewer of us, though, are likely to recognize the name of Felicia Montealegre Bernstein, the Costa Rican-born woman who was married to the composer-conductor for nearly three decades. It is she who plays a prominent role in Maestro, the Bradley Cooper-directed film that covers much of their relationship from their first meeting in 1946, their marriage in 1951, and, spoiler alert, to her death in 1978. So though the film features Cooper portraying Bernstein and follows a screenplay crafted by Cooper and Josh Singer, the performance by Carrie Mulligan as Felicia is as important to the film as are Cooper's directorial decisions, which, aside from his own spot-on impersonation of Bernstein, include occasional use of black-and-white cinematography, fantasy sequences that merge more or less seamlessly with reality, and an overall story arc that covers the ups and downs of the couple's long relationship that was complicated by Bernstein's own, for want of a better word, bisexuality. While the first half of the film plays out in a rat-a-tat manner reminiscent of a 1940s-era comedy drama, the second half is far starker, more authentic, capturing the messy aspects of how ambition and success mixed with personal faults can both coexist and yet do damage to a relationship forged on mutual love and maybe more important, need. Well, maybe I should address the sound quality here because due to circumstances beyond our control... I am in studio, but Dan and MP are remote, so we're not in the same room, but we're going to try and recreate the same crackling chemistry we always have when we're around the same table. Right, guys? Right on, bro. All right. Going back to Maestro, I think that this is a not very good movie with one really great scene that's near the end, and it's when we finally see Bradley Cooper as Bernstein conducting an entire piece of music, Mahler's Resurrection Symphony, which has become something of a legendary performance of his career. And Cooper, as filmmaker, just kind of lets it play. We see the entire thing and we finally see the physicality and the intensity and the power that Bernstein had as an orchestra leader. We'd seen bits and pieces before and heard it alluded to, but it's when we finally get to see his true artistry. And I think it's a really incredible moment. But the rest of Maestro, to me, just felt so mannered in every conceivable way. But the screenplay follows the generic biopic 101 blueprint. And 
going to those two central performances by Cooper and by Kerry Mulligan, they're technically accomplished, but I was always aware that I was looking at these two actors acting in all capital letters, and especially in the middle section of the movie when Cooper's playing Bernstein in his 50s or 60s. And I wasn't thinking about how well Cooper was embodying this real person. I was thinking, wow, you know, he clearly listened to a lot of audio tapes of Bernstein talking so he could get his speech pattern just right. All I was thinking about was technique. I wasn't getting wrapped up in these characters or this story. And so for me, even though it is beautifully made, I mean, I'm sure this is a shoe in for best cinematography at the Academy Awards and maybe even some more. This movie just left me really cold. I didn't care for it very much, although I could tell that Bradley Cooper's heart was really in it. It just didn't engage me really at all, except for that one scene I mentioned, which I think is when the movie really takes off. But at that point, you're nearly two hours deep into it. So, yeah, kind of a miss for me. Well, and we have to be respectful of your perspective, Nathan, because you are the music guy. No, we don't. (laughs) Oh, okay. Never mind. No, of course you don't. Well, I did learn a few things. First of all, my entire life I've been calling him Leonard Bernstein, so that was an epiphany for me. And I guess I did like this, Nathan, better than you did, because I appreciated the various aspects of it, as Dan mentioned in his introduction, you know, the way that Cooper structures the film. And you did get a sense of what was happening in New York during this various time periods. And I appreciated that. And a reveal on the part of me and Dan, we do know somebody who was friends with Bernstein and can attest to some of the reality that's portrayed in this particular film. But I agree, it's not a biopic. It's not really a look behind the scenes. And I would agree, Nathan, that I'm not sure Cooper gets the backstory and the essence of who Bernstein was. I mean, we hear all of these allusions to his being a narcissist and wanting to be the center of attention and thinking that he's above the rules. And all of that is true. But he brought something amazing to the music world. You know, I love working with you, Nathan, for so many reasons, because I respect your opinions. I respect your point of view, respect your knowledge of film, which I didn't have at your age. (laughs) So here comes the other shoes dropping right now. (laughs) Listening to you talk about Maestro just cemented my feeling. I disagree with you in every single point that you make. I don't think it's a biopic. I think it's a study of an egomaniac involved in a messy marriage with a woman who is every bit his equal and who he comes to realize is his equal and who he needs as badly as she needs him. I think that the movie itself is made superbly. I've read other critics' work about this, and most of them who don't like it complain about what the movie isn't rather than what it is. And I can't fault them because I've done the same thing. But in this particular case, I was just taken away by the pure artistry of what Cooper puts on the screen. This is this guy's only second movie, and it's an experiment in many cases, and maybe it doesn't always work. But at the heart of it, I think there were scenes, there's one scene you talked about, you know, at the end where he directs the Mahler. For me, the best scene in the entire film is the scene that is shot in middle distance, shot as a single take 
between him coming into the bedroom and he and Felicia having this argument and her putting him right in his place. I, mm-hmm. I thought that was a superb study on this. And I couldn't disagree with you more about the acting. Maybe Cooper is mannered somewhat. But if Terry Mulligan doesn't walk away with an Oscar for her performance here, that's going to be another one of the great Oscar crimes. So, really? I, yeah, this is a case in which you and I are coming at completely different positions about a film. Yeah, apparently so. Well, and I love Carrie Mulligan. Yeah. I, I think she's great. But maybe it was the mid-Atlantic accent that everyone has. It just felt like too much of a put-on for me. I don't know. I mean, I liked the earlier scenes of Maestro more as far as the style was concerned because you know, it's shot in this beautiful black and white and it has these seemingly impossible shots and sometimes has these moments where, you know, musical numbers break out. And I like that stuff in theory, but I think ultimately you are right. This is a movie about a marriage, but at the end of the film, I thought, I don't know if there's anything particularly unique about this marriage that I haven't seen in other films. And I would actually point to Fosse Verdon, which was a miniseries that was made about the relationship between Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon. Maybe it's unfair to compare a feature to a miniseries, but that was also about this toxic relationship between two creative people. And it showed not only how they ticked as individuals, it showed how they were collaborators, how they fed off of each other in both positive and negative ways, how they inspired one another. By the end of this movie, I don't really have any insight into why either of them were the superstars that they were. This felt like a movie that was kind of locked inside the filmmaker's head where he became so obsessed with this subject and so mired in the details of particularly Bernstein's life and career that he kind of forgot to explain, at least to me, to explain the subject. And so I was sort of left wanting at the end, you know, even though I could appreciate what he was doing. And let's face facts. I mean, I think in some of these instances, and we had a similar discussion when we talked about Priscilla, the story of Priscilla Presley. So here we're also, apparently, as we know, there was a lot of controversy before the film even opened about Bradley Cooper, who strikes most people as a super waspish, playing the part of Leonard Bernstein and choosing to... Oh, see, here I told you um, to adopt, you know, his mannerisms, his voice, his appearance and so forth in a way that some people felt was unduly stereotyped. And so I think that we have a situation where we're dealing with that pre-publicity. So I think Cooper was walking, trying to navigate this path that was fraught with potential minefields. And I'm squarely in the middle between the two of you in terms of the quality of this film. And I do think that people should consider it, especially those of a certain age, as Dan mentioned up front. Yeah. And the only rejoinder that I would make to you, Nathan, is that so much has been written and so much has been publicized about Leonard Bernstein that I think that Cooper and Singer decided to take this limited viewpoint and run with it. And I think that's a legitimate thing to do. At any rate, this was our discussion of the Bradley Cooper film Maestro. This is Movies 101, and it's time to take a short break. Before we go, remember that you can access podcasts of Movies 101 by going online at SpokanePublicRadio.org. While there, check out the individual reviews that Nathan and I write. Don't do it now, though, because we'll be right back to talk about Leave the World Behind. You're listening to Movies 101 on Spokane Public Radio.
And we're back. This is Movies 101, and I'm your host, Dan Webster. During the first half of the show, Mary Pat Truthart, Nathan Weinbinder, and I discussed the Bradley Cooper film, Maestro. Let's now turn to a Netflix streaming feature that is a study of two families enduring their worst nightmare. That feature is titled Leave the World Behind, and it was directed by Sam Esmail, who co-wrote the screenplay with the novelist Ruman Alam. It stars Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke as a couple living in Brooklyn who one day impulsively decide to take a short vacation with their two children on nearby Long Island. Their hideaway break is disrupted at night when the owner of the house, the mansion they have rented, shows up with his daughter requesting that they void the agreement since a power outage in Manhattan has left them with no place to stay. The owner, George, or G.H. as he calls himself, is played by Mahershala Ali, and it's obvious that something more than a mere power outage is at play. This becomes obvious when all internet and phone service goes out. Leave the World Behind becomes a study of how two families, one white and one black, are forced to face up to the possibility of end times while examining their respective biases and resentments, both toward each other and society in general. While the characters are mostly stock, the performances by the past Oscar winners Roberts and Ali, but especially by Ali, are impressive, even if the ending that Ismail gives us might strike some as just a little bit lacking. I've been looking at the discourse surrounding this movie, Leave the World Behind, over the last couple of weeks because it is a Netflix movie. So a lot of people hit play on their services and gave it a watch. And it kind of seems like it's been pretty divisive, that this is either a love it or hate it kind of proposition. And you can count me in the hate camp. I thought this was awful. <laughs> and and maybe I'm coming into this from the wrong angle because I've read the original novel that this is based on by Ruman Alam. It was a pandemic novel. It just so happened to come out in 2020. And it's this very chilly kind of haunting story with a lot of mystery at the center of it. You come away from the end wondering all of these things like, what did this mean? What was that person's motivation? This movie spells things out a little bit more clearly in a way that I did not find satisfying. And I also felt like, I mean, you called the character stock. I totally agree with that. I also feel like they don't behave like normal human beings, but not in a way that was like trying to make some kind of commentary. I just think it's bad writing. And yeah, the acting is good, I suppose. But I felt almost embarrassed for Julia Roberts in this movie because her character is like every cliche you've ever heard about like a waspy, rich person, you know, and she's like a misanthrope. And we know that because she says it over and over and over again. And she just behaves in so many weird ways. And also, it's just like that's something that's in the novel as well, this distrust she feels towards these people that come to the door at night. And in the book, it's an elderly couple, not a father and daughter. So that's an unusual change. But even so, I just felt like this was... I guess trying to be a satire about, I don't know, the way in which we live now. I thought it failed completely at that. I thought that the cinematography, which is showy and Esmail's always turning his camera upside down and round and round like he did on his television show, Mr. Robot. But I didn't feel like it added anything. It just felt distracting to me. The final punchline got a laugh out of me. I will give it that. But for the most part, I found this really, really tough going. I did not like it at all. You will be happy to hear that I agree with you. Yay! Um, <laughs> and most important, whether it was the character or how the entire script was crafted, I thought Julia Roberts was awful. 
And <laughs> again, I'm trying to separate her from her character. But honestly, at the beginning of this film, I thought she was in a bad school play. Mm-hmm. She was wooden. She just delivered her lines as though she were in a play. And I just really was completely floored by how she chose to take this character or how she was directed to play this character. And, you know, I'm not a huge fan of these end times, fantastical situations anyway, but, you know, you just didn't really like any of the characters. The little daughter, everyone treated her horribly. And, (laughs) you know, so she's sort of wandering around in her own movie or airspace or whatever. The son is sullen throughout. The only character actually who I liked at all was Ethan Hawke as the dad. Me too. And he acquitted himself, especially going up against, I mean, he has his own award bona fide. But this was a myth from my perspective on every level. I wish it were a satire, but I don't think it was even trying to be that. I would love to say that I disagree with both of you. I would love to get into a really huge argument here. But the only qualms I have is that I think both of you are taking this Netflix streaming feature, Leave the World Behind, a little too seriously. I mean, it is by no means a great film. But I happen to like these apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic and end-of-the-world kinds of films. And I, I thought there was enough creepiness. And I haven't read the book. Let's make that clear. So I can't make that comparison, which we've had this discussion in the past. That's quite often unfair to a movie to compare it to the book. But I thought there was enough here. And we haven't even mentioned Kevin Bacon, who (laughs) plays this guy. I did like Kevin Bacon. Yeah, I like Kevin Bacon, but that's a stock character, too. I didn't think that it was very ambitious. I didn't think it really had anything new to say, but it maintained my interest over the the, the making of it. And of course, the tween daughter is obsessed with friends. And of course, (laughs) you know, coming on the heels of Matthew Perry's passing, that just added another level of weirdness to the whole thing. Well, and and going back to the novel, I don't want to compare Leave the World Behind the movie to the book in a an unfavorable way, even though I do think the book works better. I was just kind of struck by how many things Esmail as a screenwriter changed and added. The friend stuff isn't anywhere in the book. Most of the quote unquote action sequences that happen in this movie are not in the book. And the whole time I was just thinking, well, what attracted him to this material in the first place? Because nothing. If you're uh, changing it up so radically. Well, and not only change it up radically, but make it way, way dumber. I think you can adapt a novel and change a lot of things fundamentally about it and still make something work. Worthwhile. I also think that earlier in the year, we had a very similar movie, the M. Night Shyamalan film Knock at the Cabin, which was also about a family out in the middle of nowhere. These interlopers show up and say there's an apocalypse happening, but they don't have proof of it right away. And I thought it also had really showy cinematography. I thought everything about that movie was better than this and also didn't have the pretensions that this movie has. And I don't think this movie meets its pretensions because I'm not even really sure what it was trying to say or be ultimately. Well, so Nathan, in the book, which I did not read, you mentioned that the owners of the home are elderly. So that's a huge sea change from what happens here. Mm -hmm. But the racial tension that we feel during a significant part of the movie, how is that reflected in the book? That's in the book as well. There's definitely the race and class commentary happening. 
but I think it's done more subtly in the novel than it is here. Also, I'm pretty sure that the deer motif, I think, is also in the book. But in the movie, that whole thing of these deer that are congregating around the house, the way that that entire thing comes to a conclusion is another one of Ms. Roberts' more embarrassing moments. I just, <laughs> I know she's like a multi million dollar making superstar with an Academy Award, but I just felt bad for her because the character here is just so lame. Well, I can't disagree with that. Just when we said we weren't going to compare the movie to the book, that's what we continued to do. Because honestly, I didn't really have so much to say about this film. And, you know, sure, if you're home over the winter break from work or school or whatever, you might be tempted to check it out. And hey, in the comfort of your own home, petting a kitty or a dog, I say go for it. I disagree, right. but <laughs> it also kind of seems like there are people that are digging this and are finding its weirdness compelling. So I think this is a a your mileage may vary kind of movie. But for me, as far as mileage is concerned, this got zero miles to the gallon. And also that the scene with all of the self-driving Teslas should have been funny and cool, but is instead, again, just very lame. I... Yeah, I just nope. didn't Although click with I this. you have to say, I must agree because I detest Teslas. I don't know how they've become the car to have when they look like Ford Focuses and the <laughs> company is run by, never mind. Okay, I, I will get off my soapbox. I'm just going to say that that was my favorite scene of the entire film right there. We've got to go here. But I wanted to point out that in our first half, we talked about Maestro. That's also a Netflix film, and it is now streaming on Netflix. But it opened last week at the Magic Lantern. So at any rate, we just finished talking about Leave the World Behind. And this is Movies 101. I'm Dan Webster. And earlier in the show, Nathan Weinbinder, Murray Pat Truthart, and I discussed Bradley Cooper's Leonard Bernstein biopic, Maestro. Let's take this moment to thank Cassie Fox for both producing and engineering the show this week under particularly disturbing circumstances. And we thank you to our loyal listeners. We invite you back next week, same time, same spot on the radio dial, when we'll again check out all the best that cinema has to offer, wherever we can find it. Until then, consider these words from the great Mark Twain. What a wee little part of a person's life are his acts and his words. His real life is led in his head and is known to none but himself. You're listening to Movies 101 on Spokane Public Radio. The Movies 101 podcast is made possible by the members of Spokane Public Radio. Become a member at spokanepublicradio.org. Thanks for listening to Movies 101.